3: That's the second time it's gone on. Oh, never got home. They never got home. They never got home. Those 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 boys. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Oh, you can laugh. i the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be
0: like me. You don't know
2: what you're talking about. What yeah. did you
4: want? Know that? i like to stay alive for All six right, days. I'm I'm good I'd say it to your face I'd
0: say it to well, you now. I'm down to my and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shiny man. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for Monday, Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen here with Murph. Hello there, Ron. And a particularly rejuvenated-looking Ken Early. Hi, Ken. Hi, On. How are you? Well, I'm good. You sound as rejuvenated as you look. I mean, you're looking healthy, positively glowing, I would nearly say, Karen. Would you go that far? You came bounding up those
4: stairs I'd there. say there's a glow. I think it might be a little bit of sunburn.
3: What have you
1: been doing that, that has meant that gotten you sunburned today, Ken?
4: Well, I've had a fantastic day so far. Yeah. Until I came in here, it was really going very well. Uh, I uh, That was because... We were speaking last night. What are we going to do tomorrow? Well, Martin O'Neill's doing a press conference, um, you know, around about midday. I hate to do it.
1: I hate to do it to you, Ken, but you know, would it be possible for you to go out to, oh, Abbotstown?
4: I said absolutely sure. Stepped up, took that one. Champion, bloody champion, mate. And um, on my way, out to, I, I thought, well, what a lovely day it is. Why don't I cycle out to Abbottstown? And so, That'd be I, really
1: grim, Ken. Surely.
4: Well, that's you know, if you've ever if you've ever been to Abbottstown by car from the city from The city direction, it's pretty grim, you know. It's a kind of a concrete spaghetti jungle, you know. Uh, it's no a,
0: offense to the people living in the nice area. Outside. Well, look, all I'm saying no, as a it, drive on, I mean, if, you're, you know, if every, you're on the road, I know. I just we need, we need to make that perfectly
4: clear. If you once you get out there and you, you've got all those big, I'm sure, I'm sure the people who live there don't think of the massive motorway, uh, infrastructure, the roundabouts and overpasses as necessarily the jewels of Blanchardstown. You know what I mean? Uh, You you know, you can get stuck in a bit of traffic. Oftentimes, on a day like this, the sun's beating down a bit, reflecting off the asphalt, I'm going to say. So did
1: you you cross-country it?
4: Well, it turns out that there is a high-speed bicycle archery connecting my home in Fairview Mm. pretty much directly with Abbottstown. Uh, in the form of the Royal Canal.
1: Ah! So you you cycled along the banks of the Royal Canal?
4: Along the banks of the Royal Canal. And, okay, there's a few little gates where you've pretty much got to lift the bike over, but that's okay. And, uh, the scent of fresh mown grass on, honeysuckle, heavy in the air, uh, the honeybees uh, buzzing around. And I thought, Hard isn't, at work, Ken. Hard I thought, work. isn't this amazing? This isn't much better than being in the office. I was cycling long, fresh air, nice smells, nature everywhere. It feels like being in the country.
0: I get worried when Kenneth is happy.
1: Mm. Oh, don't worry. There's a reckoning coming down the track, I'm sure. We shouldn't let him out so often. I think that's uh, rule number one.
4: I arrived at Abbottstown, uh, the National Aquatic Centre, of course, uh, the Gaelic facilities there, Mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. Uh, and obviously the the National Football Campus, I'm going to say. And... uh, yeah, Martin O'Neill was there. We'll, we'll hear from him. He wasn't too cheerful. And then cycling back through the Phoenix Park. Owen, oh, what a wonderful day. Ah,
0: what, a, what an amenity the Phoenix Park is. Uh, uh, will so we continue this tour of Dublin or will we get into some football? Hmm. A t- football that's a history. tough
1: question, Owen, no, but I think probably our listeners would prefer if we talked some football.
0: Neil Taylor became Irish sport's most hated man on Friday night for a period at least. But speaking on our special late night post-match bonus podcast, Ken only had it in for one man. I guess we have our our villain for the day, Neil Taylor from Wales.
4: Seamus, no, he's not my villain. My villain is Nicola Rizzoli from Italy.
0: But he did send off Um, Neil Taylor within about two seconds of the foul occurring.
4: Yeah, but he didn't send off Garrett Bale, did he?
3: No elbowing when I played football and when Liam played football. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't think there was Lynn. I never saw an elbow. I never got an elbow in the face all the time I played. It's a new foul. That's because you're playing for the wood, game, David. The use of the elbow. Awesome in the That's pletious, perfected by a That's
4: someone who played against Andy Gray. who was, no was no used elbows. used. was no elbows. Wow, what an absolute load of bollocks that was. Uh, <laughs> Seriously, come
0: on. Well, whatever about the no elbows in Aamon Dunphy's day. John O'Shea agrees with you, Ken, in a roundabout way and the referee said since we recorded that, well so he didn't say this I was going to say myself that since we recorded this show O'Shea said that there could have been two red cards and that he himself was lucky considering what happened to Coleman it's what everybody was saying on Friday night but it's interesting that O'Shea having seen it I think he had watched a replay of it by the time he said this thought no 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 even though there's supposed to be a sort of omerta I'm not going to hammer Gareth Bale but I'm certainly going to leave it out there that that wasn't acceptable
4: yeah, um, he didn't really want to say too much, but he did mention you know the stitches that he'd had to have. Bale's studs went straight in there. Um, it was pretty obvious. I mean, and, and you can see uh photographs of the moments of impact are identical. You know, Bale and Taylor, the the two, the 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 attitude of, of each player's body is almost exactly the same. The difference is that, um, in the case of O'Shea, O'Shea was clearing the ball, um. Away, so so his leg was basically travelling in a direction almost perpendicular to the direction of Bale's uh, studs, whereas with Coleman and Taylor, Coleman kicked through uh, Taylor's boot as it came uh, as it came uh, across. So it was just two forces, pretty much head on, smashing into each other, and unfortunately, Coleman's leg was the uh, was the breaking point.
0: Yeah, it wasn't so much that, even though this has been said and could be right as well, that if O'Shea's leg had been planted on the ground there could have been an issue there the bigger issue would have been if he was if the two of them were coming together, each other at full force uh, as was the case in the Coleman Tackle unfortunately if you want to hear that post-match show in full by the way secondcaptains.com is the place to go to become a member of the World Service where you can also hear our piece on Socrates and the great Brazil team at the 1982 World Cup now Brazil might not quite be at that level again just yet but they did hammer Uruguay 4-1 in the big South American qualifier a few nights back, went up the wonderful Tim Vickery on the show today to talk about the resurgence of the, that great football nation. That's all after today's important sport.
4: So I think first of all, let's hear from Martin O'Neill because when he arrives with Robbie Brady, who's going to be the captain for the game against Iceland tomorrow night, uh, all of the questions, well, most of the questions, were really on one subject. This is how the press conference began.
3: I think he's just beginning to come to terms with it. I saw him yesterday, and he's, uh, he's still pretty down, really. Uh, he's uh, not in as much pain, obviously. Operation went very, very well, and it's just a matter of coming to terms with it. Do you have a timeline on his recovery? No. And there's, <clears throat> Medically speaking, it's very, very difficult. Obviously, it depends, I think, how quickly, uh, first few weeks, how everything goes. But, uh, no, I don't think anyone's putting a timeline on it yet.
1: Have you spoken to Everton?
3: Um, yeah, I think that uh, there has been communication, yes. But not by you? Um, n- no, not by me. Uh, by the medical staff. Okay.
1: And just on reflection, um, <coughs> what do you think of the Taylor tackles and the bail tackle?
3: Well, obviously they're very poor tackles.
1: Do you have anything else to say on them?
3: What else do you want me to say?
1: Do you have an assessment on them? In
3: what, in, in what sense? They're very poor challenges. Very poor indeed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't making it easy there.
4: No, Marine Crow asking questions there. I'm not getting too much of a response from Martin How O'Neill. How many
0: ways can I phrase this question before this guy maybe gives me oh, something?
4: Martin O'Neill didn't want to really go out there all guns blazing against dangerous play. Maybe because if he did, we'd be... The ones to suffer most um, I mean if you think back a couple of times we've I mean what Keane was saying last week, tackling's still part of the bloody game hit him fairly you know uh, we've We've done it a few times got uh, I, I mean most memorably against Italy in euro 2016 when our approach was whew, fairly rough, and a more more stricter refereeing that night would have seen our euro bubble popped in pretty short order I guess in the first half in that game there was a few very heavy challenges and we've it's something that we've used and, and it's something that you could say you know the kind of a, a aggressive approach is something which was evident from Ireland in the first half of the game the other night I mean you know what Glenn Whelan did to his little buddy from Stoke Joe Allen Joe Allen a man whose nose was pancaked by Marwan Filaney. In another qualifier some time ago, um, didn't really appreciate this elbow that he got on the face, in the, in the jaw, from Glenn Whelan. Thought it was a bit much. Um, you know, there was Shane Long. Uh, Whelan's one was worse
0: than Long's, wasn't it? Yeah, because they one. were being grouped in together. And then uh, when we were speaking on Friday, we'd only, myself and Murphy, just gotten back from the stadium and you were there as well. Having watched it back afterwards, Long's was a little bit like, you know, if you're very unlucky, you could do a bit of damage to the foot there. but didn't seem to I, I I thought there wasn't enough in it for Ashley Williams to be going on about it the way he was for uh for for like the next two or three minutes. Whereas the Whelan one was oof, pretty nasty. Yeah. Everyone said that, that could have been a booking, but it could have been a red, shorty. Oh,
4: easily could have been a red, yeah. of course. There were lots of things that could have been red, but the referee doesn't want to give a red because if he gives a red, everyone is moaning at the referee. So he's kinda like, Hm, do I really need to make myself the centre of attention here? Referees are always getting Criticise this referee wants to be a star. (laughs) This referee thinks he's Judy Garland. Look at him! You know, (laughs) hungry, hungry for the limelight. Actually, all he's doing is is sending people off for things that they should get sent off for
0: elbows and so on.
4: Yeah, I mean, and and when you don't, then you've got a you lose control of the situation. People are flying in crazily, and you know Neil Taylor had caught the mood of the occasion and flew in on Seamus Coleman in a crazy way and. You know, Seamus Coleman is out now. I mean, it's so it's so grim when you think about his situation now. Everything, all that he's lost because of this. You know, it's like, I mean, Everton' season's going really well at the moment. Their next couple of games are Liverpool and Manchester United. Really exciting time for Everton. You know, they've won six out of their last nine matches. They've only lost one of those in the league. So they're kind of climbing up the table. He's going to miss that whole run-in. He's going to miss the rest of Ireland's qualification campaign. He's going to miss the beginning of next season with Everton, maybe half of next season, maybe more than that. Um, Everton will probably buy a replacement for him, so he no longer is an automatic uh, player for Everton. Uh, he will have to win his place back.
0: He, he, was, he might miss out on a big money move. Exactly. He might miss was, out on a hypothetical big money move. If, that, if
4: there was ever any chance of that, there is no longer any chance of that. I mean, all of this that he's lost because of that one moment. Um, and so you think, well, would it be worth it for the referees to sort of get a little bit more strict on red cards and sending players off when they do crazy things? You know, the referee didn't want to send off Gareth bail. Imagine you send off bail. I mean, Wales are appealing the yellow card, right? I didn't even realise I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, O'Neill today was saying, I don't think you can apply, I, I don't think you can, you can appeal the yellow card in case of mistaken identity. But they were saying they were going to do it because he well, misses...
0: You, you can only do it in the case of mistaken no, identity. That was what O'Neill said. Yes, yeah,
4: yeah. Wales were saying, we're going to appeal. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> that, <laughs> that wasn't Gareth it Bale, wasn't, that was... you got any somebody number somebody. of Welsh players <laughs> yeah, yeah. stepping forward at me. It was me, he said <laughs> Sam Vaux. I am Gareth Bale.
1: But it's an interesting point you make, though. If if Sam Vaux had... Uh, had had made that tackle on John O'Shea do you think he would have been sent off I mean I think that there is an, sort of an, a bias towards players lunging desperately to try and score a goal as we were talking about on Friday night it's a different kind of lunge to the lunge that you know you would do in a centre circle do you think that that was the bias that was a play in the referee's mind or was it oh well here's one of the four best players in the world that I'm going to have to try and uh, that I'm going to have to send off. Now. I think
4: Bale has to work harder to be sent off than an ordinary man. I mean, we were talking about him getting sent off recently playing for Real Madrid, and he really had to earn that one. It was like four fouls in a row, followed by picking the eye up and hurling him to the ground. Yeah, well, we told
0: we, we told our listeners on that night, ken watch out for Gareth Bale against Ireland. Yeah. The red mist will descend once again. He's a maniac.
4: He is a he is a nutbag. Uh, <laughs> well known nutbag Gareth Bale. <laughs> Um, but look, you know, and, and he he definitely should have got a second yellow card for his kicking of James McLean in the in the guts. But you know, as like Aidan O'Hara was pointing out today in his his column in the Independent, he was saying, you know, we, James McLean is a hero to Irish supporters. Um, you know, he's done these kinds of things. Uh, I mean, he 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 had a great tackle on Bale in the game, which got a huge cheer. Yes, you've cleaned out Bale. It wasn't.
0: Well, that oh, was a, that was wasn't a high. tackle. It wasn't
4: a high tackle, yeah. It was kind of a little bit from behind, but, you know, he managed to... For a tackle of, of, I would say, extreme difficulty, he managed to execute it very well. He hasn't always been so clean in his execution. I mean, there was the Arkadiusz Milik, which which Aidan refers to, you know, where, where Milik was out for a couple of months. That was the one this, where he
0: had just come off the bench. Wasn't came off, it from, came yeah, off the bench against
4: Poland and just plowed straight through Milik and, and took him out.
0: And the crowd went... Yeah. Yeah.
4: And he, and he was a hero. I mean, people were, were tweeting to me photos of, of Seamus Coleman doing a bit of a leg breaker on Raheem Sterling, you know, recently the, in the Everton Man City match. Um, you know, and we, we kind of tend to go, well, oh, that's good, good play. by I mean, McLean, I can quote from him saying, oh, you know, if, the, if, I, if I get a chance to go through someone, you know, obviously I'm going to take it. You know, this is kind of, so we kind of decide, decide at some point what kind of game we actually want to see. You know, do we want to see that and do we want to accept that, you know, you're going to get casualties? And sometimes the casualty is going to be your national team captain, you know, a really good guy who's playing the best football of his life and is in his peak years. And he's going to lose all that because you want players to be able to do cheap shots on each other just so you can get some kind of a cheap thrill out of it. Because that's the way that violence in football usually is. It's not like a proper violent sport. You know, if if rugby is a properly violent sport, uh, you know... Uh, the ufc is proper is proper violence two people trained and prepared for violence go in and try to inflict violence on each other that's the that's the game it, you know in in rugby okay maybe the violence is a little bit more indirect but everyone is is ready to you know punish the other team you know as they as they do if they if they get the chance to put in a heavy hit on someone they're going to take it and that's kind of expected that's part of that's part of the game you've got you, you know that that could happen to you 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 have to be psychologically prepared for that that's not the case in football it's the case in
0: some football matches though you've already referenced one in the Ireland Italy one was a classic case where we're <laughs> playing against a team who are under motivated yeah but still are technically better than us we're the ones with all the motivation Let's pick all the monsters. Let's get our Shane Duffy's in there. Let's get all our big, strong... <laughs> I remember
4: someone's tweet. Are you tall? Uh, who's tall and has tattoos? Several hands go up. Right, you're all in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there was
0: a, So the, uh, that does exist. It's not as though this is an anomaly or anything like that. The, there, There are games where... And there are moments in games where... Violence is inflicted upon uh, you know for an end, as opposed to just for the
4: yeah. End. But it's not it's not really part of it's not it's not integral to the game. Yeah, and I usually when it does happen, it's it is in the form of a of a cheap shot or a kind of what what I mean when I say that is like uh, an attack that the recipient of the attack didn't see coming. That's what it usually is, and that's not fair. You know what I mean? It's not. Uh, hmm. it does there, I don't really think that it actually enhances the game. You know. It gives, it's bad certainly for, the, the, the more better you are at football, the worse this is for you.
0: Yeah, of course. But do you want no tough tackling?
4: High tackling should be a red card because the risks are too big. Unless you don't think the risks are big. Unless you think, you know, one, Seamus Coleman every so often is all right. If You, you want to see a few high tackles and, and, and if Seamus Coleman, you know, has his legs snapped, then pff, it's an acceptable price to pay. You know? Is that what you're saying?
0: Well, no, but that was red carded that that was
4: illegal it was red carded but there was similar tackles which weren't red carded so there's no consistency of punishment for these tackles which is why players do them and if they were consistently punished then they would stop doing them mm. Be, it would then become the case of like say for instance say, say uh, I was playing in the uh, me and Ciarán were playing in the Premier League I was Burnley's captain <laughs> okay uh, and Ciarán is playing as a lazy left midfielder for Rafael Benitez newly promoted Newcastle okay and uh he's still mystifyingly in the team. He's like a temperamental import. Rafa's Rafa's gone out on a limb here.
1: He never talks to me. He never says anything to he me. Do, he no, nothing positive. But he keeps picking do. yeah. Yeah. up <laughs> uh,
4: and anyway, we're we're there at a corner and uh, and I uh and, and there's a bit of uh, I'm rocking him and, and there's a bit of, you know, pushing and shoving and whatnot. And um and I give him a little shove, right? And he turns around and in full view of the referee. He smacks me. He slaps me in the face. Open as, hand. As, yeah, open handed slap in the face as though challenging me to, a duel. And stands there, some bastard. And stands, stands there with his hands on his hips, right? <laughs> and the referee, once he's like picked his eyeballs back up off the pitch, puts them back into his head, and he, sa- and he takes out his red card and sends Kieran off, right? You, you, you agree that so far this is plausible?
0: The sending off is
4: plausible. I mean, yeah, why is the like sending off plausible? Because there's an hands.
0: unwritten rule that you don't raise
4: your hands in football. So that's a, it's always going to be red card if you do that. Even I, if it's like a really fey slap.
0: I say unwritten. like like I'm I'm there. Be.
4: I I don't even go down. I'm just I'm just kind of insulted at at the slap in the face that I've got. It's not it's not dangerous. It's not like he's punched me in the head. It's not like he's knocked me out. He's just slapped me on the cheek. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no damage. There's no harm done. But what happens? Red card. Red card. Now what's the reaction to that? Well you can't raise your hands in football. Who who gets the blame? Who are the who are who's everyone on the Newcastle fan forums? They're having a pop at you Ken. They're having a pop at me. Well probably some of them are. But who else are they having a pop at? Me on me. Yeah. Oh, oh,
1: I mean I'm stupid. I mean I, I you know I know the rules. Yeah, the fact it's a matter of exactly. I know the rules. If I if I if I raise my hands even to an annoying little twat like Ken there, yeah. no problem. I mean, it's got to happen.
4: Yeah, absolutely. See, so Some Newcastle fans would be saying, oh, it's worth it anyway, you know. But mostly people would not be blaming the referee. They'd be like, well, the referee had to, had to do it. That's the game. You know, if you do this, if you do something stupid, which you know is going to be a red card, then you can't complain when the referee sends you off and you can't criticize the referee for sending someone off. The referee's almost looking at him going, I'm sorry, this hurts, it hurts you more than it hurts, it hurts me more than it hurts you. But like, you got to go. That's that just stupid. Now, that's the cultural change that needs to happen. Everyone can recognise that's the case with a silly little slap in the face that doesn't hurt anyone. But a high
0: tackle. Well, it's easier to make the... It's easier to be 100% certain that you have seen what you've seen as a referee. Uh, this is just giving referees a bit of a get-out here. I think this is sometimes why they're reluctant to, to send players off. It can happen so fast. And it was very clear in the case, the case of the night. But sometimes it happens so fast that especially watching TV but even being a game sometimes you're not 100% sure who's failed who mm. it, it, sometimes it can look filthy from one player when you look back it's like oh hang on a second it was actually the other guy did him I think that's maybe where referees are coming from not, by the way this is no excuse for not sending off bail mm. for example which like, that, that was again one where there was plenty of plenty of scope to see what happened but I'm guessing that whereas the scenario you describe it's very easy to see such an unnatural movement as a player slapping someone or
1: that's exactly it I mean you know like you tackles are still allowed as Roy Keane says mm. and you know if you can still perfectly execute a tackle and you know that and that's a part of the game i mean if you raise your hands in the penalty area i mean it doesn't do anything harm anyone but it's it's so easy to spot. It's, it's not like, as you say, it's a completely unnatural thing to do in the course of a football game.
4: Well, maybe a bit of indiscriminate punishment is not necessarily a bad thing if what you're trying to do is achieve a cultural shift from a situation where everybody seems to think that a high tackle is basically okay if it's their player doing it, to a situation where if a player tackles high and he gets sent off, people don't blame the ref as they now do, but blame their player for doing something stupid. If they, you're... You're an idiot. Why did you do that? Why did you Why do you go in high foot? Why do you go in over the ball? You know those players would find themselves booted out of their clubs. No one would want to would want them on the field. But like this guy is a is a red card risk. He's going to get us. We're going to be playing without down to ten men.
1: It's the feeling many out fans have watching Marcus Rollo. I mean, yeah, there have been. I would say three tackles in the last three or three months How he that should have been red cards that weren't red cards. Yeah, I mean, I mean he, what is the what is stopping Marcus Rocco from going over the top of the ball in at some stage over the next month?
4: Nothing. Uh, I mean, he he keeps getting away with it. He's just being encouraged to do it. I mean, he will get you know sent off or or possibly injure someone. But the point is that if this culture it was was changed, then players like Rocco it would be like someone who had an uncontrollable urge to. To slap their opponents in the face and stand there with their hands on their hips, you know, saying "I challenge you," and and that those players will be will be ridiculed out of the game, and that's kind of what you're trying to that's what you're trying to get to. Or you know, alternatively, you could just keep going the way it is, and every so often, someone like Seamus Coleman uh, loses, you know, one of the best years of their career. Who, who knows is, what their prognosis is going to be?
0: Who else is saying what about this or about
3: Friday night?
4: Well, Emmett Malone had a good interview with Alan Judge, to whom the same thing happened. Um, You might recall, I mean, April 9th last year, challenged by Luke Heim of Ipswich, uh, double fracture of the lower leg, same as Seamus Coleman. There were times in my own recovery, says Andrew where I couldn't walk properly. I thought I'd never run properly, but now I'm running fine. He hasn't played since then, April 9th, so it's nearly a year now. Um, You know, medical science has advanced. There are people talking about whether he'll come back the same player, but I wouldn't listen to any of that. There are people who are just looking to say negative things for no reason. You learn that quickly. I mean... The way that he talks about it um, is like the hardest part of it, almost the psychological aspect of it. I mean, for there's so many things. I mean, the re- rehabilitation work is really boring and and onerous. You know, it's there's, it's no fun and it's really hard, but you have to do it. Uh, then there's the getting your confidence back in your own leg. Because you're naturally going to be afraid of this happening again. I mean, if it happens again, it's catastrophic. I mean, it's catastrophic for it to happen at all, but then... You know, to believe, to stop worrying that it's going to happen again is amazing. And it doesn't sound from Alan Judge's interview in Emmett as though he's completely over that yet. You know, he still kind of finds himself, you know, I, wincing a little bit and then thinking, why am I doing that? I'm I'm, I'm OK. Having to tell himself that he's actually all right. Um, I
0: found that actually disappointing, not, not disappointing in terms of the quality of the interview. I just mean, when I read the headline and worked out what this piece is going to be about, I thought, oh, Alan Judge is back. I didn't even realize that. And I thought we we're going to be coming at it from th- this guy who's been through it and has come out the other side. And then I read, oh no, he's actually still in the middle of it himself. So mm. It's sad to hear.
4: Yeah, he's not. He's not back. And you know, he makes the point that it, a lot of the, uh, you know, there's there's a there's a wide variation. You could see injuries that look quite similar, um, but they're not similar. You know, it, it's it, there's a lot diff- of different things that can be happening. You remember Alan Smith when Alan Smith broke his his. Uh, well he kind of broke his ankle and his lower uh, his lower leg
0: this is the Man United and Leeds United Alan Smith as opposed to the Arsenal Smith. yeah
4: he was playing in an FA Cup game against Liverpool at Anfield and he blocked a shot from John Arnaurisa which was like a fr- free kick I think and Arnaurisa hit the ball hard as he uh, off, I think it was Arnaurisa and whatever way it happened it was weird because it wasn't a challenge it, there was nobody near Smith he blocked this ball and it was as though the 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 ball hitting his foot did, like distorted it in such a way that he landed on it very awkwardly and just broke it. Mm. And that was a really complex injury because it took in the ankle as well. The ankle is basically a joint that, you know, you kind of only get one shot at it. You know, it's not like, you know, an orthopedic surgeon can give you a new hip and you knee. There's no such thing as an ankle replacement. Not, not yet, anyway. There's a lot of moving parts and complex. You know, you, if... If it goes, like, it's not good. So what I'm saying is that you can get a range of injuries uh, of varying severity, uh, and apparently Coleman's one is relatively simple as these things go, but obviously still a really terrible injury. Um, so we, we, it, Martin O'Neill was being asked to sort of put a timeline on it. Did he think maybe Coleman, had he lost hope, he'd be involved in any qualifiers? And he didn't want to say anything about a timeline because you could either be too positive or too negative. In either way, it's not helping. No. And and you can't actually tell, so it's you know it just remains to be seen. But I wouldn't say that it's you know I mean just look at Alan Judge's experience, nearly a year and he still hasn't. That's in for
1: the World Cup, you know.
4: If he was back for the World Cup, then that would be great, because the World Cup is fifteen months. And we have to
0: qualify for it first, just in case there are any Welsh people or Austrians, even worse. Listening to this podcast, we're, Even we're worse. big. We're big in Vienna. <laughs> well, we're playing them next. It's true. You know, I'm, I'm
4: well, that's not true. Owen, actually, we're playing Iceland next. Yes, if you I don't really mind. We're playing Iceland tomorrow, but unfortunately, it is a uh, many of the stars of the Iceland team will not be there. Um, Anton Ingis Finebjornson, our Icelandic historian friend, ah, of course, um, was saying, "Caroline uh, Sigurdsson." Berker Bjarnason. Oh, hang on. I was saying Sigbjørs. Maybe he is. Maybe he is going to be there. Sigurdsson. Uh, Kolbein Sigurdsson. Berker Bjarnason. Alfred Finn Johan berg Goodmundsen, Teodor Elmer Bjarnason. And Guilfi Sigurdsson. Oh. So uh, Sig
1: Torsen, torn in the English side.
4: And Emil Halfredson. Hmm. So what I'm saying is that quite a few Icelandic players are not there. And they will be uh, bringing in some uh, French players to see how they, uh, to see how they do. He mentioned one of these is Albert Goodmanson, who uh, is, plays for PSV, and he says, "This, this guy is the fourth uh, generation of his family to play for the Iceland national team. Um, his, his grandfather uh, his great-grandfather, grandfather, father, and now him, and also his mother. Have all played international football for Iceland, so.
1: It isn't from the stones he licked at Kent.
4: Yeah, I just want to say one other thing Owen, about go this about the the occasion on, fri- on Friday night. Now, I didn't actually go down to the ground until mm, shortly before kick off.
0: That's okay, you and everyone else. I can't but notice how quickly it fills up so close to kick off at that stadium. The, it's one of the good things about it. They get a big crowd in there from. Seven thirty to seven forty-five. Yeah, because there's nobody there. Fifteen minutes ago, before kickoff. It's yeah, two thirty. Well, there was every.
4: a few Welsh people. Yeah, I was there myself around about that time. But I didn't run down there early to hang out because you know, really, what's the point? I mean, all they've got is those sandwiches which are drying up, and the... but what's this? Well, I mean, I, I thought, well, it's, it's just us those sandwiches. I mean, you, you know that I was complaining about this.
1: Mm, I was talking about a, I
4: was in Austria. Look, when, once you've been to Austria, it's like you know you've flown first class and you can't you can't hack it anymore on Ryanair. You just can't take it. Well, once you've been to Austria and eating the their pre-match buffet of roast goose and Viennese potato <laughs> salad and uh, all all the rest of it, you just kind of feel as though. hmm. Those sandwiches so I actually decided I'll get something in town first and I walked around I couldn't actually I ended up I ended up settling for a chicken pesto wrap cold as the grave <laughs> from the fridge in in one of the um one of the shops around here or Central I can't remember which one and uh so I was eating that chicken pesto it wasn't great it wasn't a lot of pesto on it just just that sort of industrial chicken very cold we've all been that soldier Ken. Uh, So now I was like, all right, okay, I might as well go to the ground now. And what do I I see when I get there? Hot food. Hot food. A smorgasbord. For the first time ever. Well, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a smorgasbord, but it was. Was there goose? No. But I mean, this is Ireland. You know, oh, there, well, there was some guinea fowl, though, right? How would he eat goose in Ireland? I mean, seriously. Have you ever known anybody goose here?
1: Mark Horgan, every Christmas. you kidding me. I swear to but God. But that's because he grew up with the turkeys. Uh, they, they couldn't, couldn't look even at look at another the turkey, turkey, I'm
4: sure. <laughs> 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 Just turkeys everywhere, and then, yeah, goose on the... Well, look, i I never eat goose. I don't know anyone else who does, but shepherd's pie.
1: Didn't David... Yeah, David Norris was talking about what he did after he lost the presidential election. Do you remember this, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> he, was, uh, he was asked, uh, you know, so how, how did you react, you know, on the days after the, uh, the president, presidential election? And he goes, well, for a few days I was mourning, but then I was invited over to a friend's house, and we had the most exquisite goose. <laughs> <laughs> that will certainly I get you I out of your remember, funk. I do remember that uh, uh, as being a particularly hilarious So film. come on, what do so we have? Mark Horgan, Sh-
0: Shepherd's pie?
4: Shepherd's else? pie. Well, I didn't have it. I didn't have it because I was, I was still trying to digest that freezing uh, <laughs> chicken pesto wrap. I'm amazed you didn't force it down you all the same. I know, but I was just like, oh, I can't believe it. One. I was frustrated when I saw it. I was, frust- I was first happy because I thought, have I done this? Did I shame the FAI into doing this? Did I? Were they, <laughs> were they listening? I know that the FAI watch, they, they keep a, they monitor... The output of various media organizations. I don't know. I, I wouldn't like to claim credit for it, you know, I'm sure. But I'd, I'd just like to think maybe I was one small, one little voice there. But, the, but, you know, vegetables, always welcome sight. Shepherd's pie um, looked nutritious enough in the WhatsApp photographs, excited WhatsApp photographs <laughs> that were being shared by, by journalists who couldn't believe it when they walked in there. So, you know, all I'm saying is a few other things that might be, might be good uh coffee stand on the fifth level, not on the uh not downstairs. And I don't mean instant coffee. I mean at least Nespresso level yes. coffee. Maybe a couple of little pastries mm-hmm. wouldn't go amiss. Yeah. Because you know, if you go to Arsenal Football Club, now I'm not saying everyone is everyone is necessarily on Arsenal's level, but they will give you a little in addition to the to the um the delicious pre match meal, they will actually hand you out a little parcel of food at half-time at half in case you got hungry during the first 45 minutes. And they will...
1: This is just... I, I would say, I don't know your impact on well all of Well, look, you
4: wonder why Arsene Wenger has been there for 20 years. You, wonder, you sit there going, how can they not have sacked Wenger? And then you look at all of, the, uh, all of the journalists sitting there at the Emirates, eyes glazed, <laughs> snoozing, snoozing in their seats, you know, replete... <laughs> would be and just just generally having a positive experience and, and saying, uh, you know, another game effort from the Arsenal.
0: <laughs> That's it from Man of the People, Ken Early.
4: <laughs> I'll give you the unvarnished account of what happened, will I? There was a train at like one o'clock back to Paris. Arrived at the station in Saint-Étienne before that train was due to go to find utter bedlam. The seat numbers weren't being respected, it was with an air of foreboding. I went to find Plas 41 and, as I expected, it already contained a tired-looking England fan, jewelry Man, probably in his late 20s. He knew why I had come, and I looked at him sternly and waggled my ticket and said, Sorry mate, it's actually my seat. And he said, Sorry mate, we've actually just been told to sit anywhere the seat numbers don't count. It's basically tough shit. I've sulked and stomped around a little bit and complained and sent angry text messages to people who didn't care. But then I thought, there's no point in just sitting here. Who knows what might happen? Possession was now 100% of the law. You have to go and find someone else whose seat you can take. So I started walking along the train, and in the very end, there was a couple of empty seats. Ah. I thought, that's interesting. I went on to the first empty seat I saw, and tried to sit down, the England fans said, sorry, mate, our friend's there. So I said, okay, moved up, went to the next empty seat, sat down, guy next to it, no complaints. Well, oh, the situation seems to have changed. I'm now one of the haves rather than the have-nots. A few minutes later, as I suspected it might, a previous the seat came along and said, sorry, mate, that's my seat. And I said, sorry, mate, my seat is actually Watcher 12, Class 41, but there's someone sitting in it. So I just came and sat in this seat, which, which is an occupied, there's a lot of us in the same boat. And he said, but that's ridiculous. I've just gone to the canteen and I got this orangina. And I said, I know, I'm really sorry. It's really unfair. The system is a total shambles. He walked away saying the word tosser. I felt bad for the guy. Maybe he didn't realize that he was in the jungle. He still thought he was on the train, but this was actually a jungle. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I can't really complain about that characterization of my behavior at this moment. However, I do have a seat and I don't think anyone saw.
0: Let's start talking a little bit about Brazil, who have won seven in a row now. Most recently, Thursday night's 4-1 thumping of Uruguay away from home. This is a Uruguay team that had been going uh, pretty strongly in World Cup qualifying up until then. Tim Vickery, sounds like Brazil are back.
2: Yeah, it certainly does. And uh, with apologies to Dinah Washington, what a difference a coach makes. (laughs) Um, Because those seven victories have all come since they, uh, they got rid of the hapless Dunga and appointed uh, Chichi, the fellow who they should have appointed after the mm. debacle of the last World Cup. And when Chichi came in, with very little time to uh, to prepare for, for the games, Brazil were down in sixth. A third of the World Cup qualification campaign had, had gone by. Brazil were in sixth place with some difficult fixtures coming up. And at that point, you certainly couldn't guarantee their place in the World Cup. Well, seven games later... What a different story. And they now look like probably the best team to come out of South America since that Argentina side of, of, of 2006. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's, so, it's been a remarkable turnaround with pretty much the same group of players. So it really does show you what a difference a coach makes.
4: So what's he been doing differently, Tim?
2: Well, a number of things. I mean, firstly, uh, and it, it's so great to see Brazil passing the ball in a way that they haven't done for years and years and years. Uh, Chichi is by far and away the the best Brazilian coach. And a lot of that comes from humility. And he had the humility to learn. Um, when he, uh, and he won everything with Corinthians. He won the Brazilian Championship, the South American Champions League, the Libertadores, and then the world title. Uh, and, and after that, he, he took time off and went to europe and studied european football and he, he wanted to see how it was that the european teams are able to uh, to achieve a numerical numerical superiority in midfield so he studied that he had the humility to study uh, and uh, he's taken that back to the brazil side and one of the one of the big differences that he's made is that the uh, the defensive line now operates higher so there's more proximity which makes it much easier to, to, to pass the ball between the lines. So from from a, from a tactical point of view, they're now set up with with a modern approach, looking to retain possession of the ball. They've still got the con- the counter attack if they if they need it, but they're much much easier on the eye. So that's been that's been uh, one enormous change. Another is uh, well, I suppose if, if you want to appear tall, go and stand to some, stand next to someone who's very small, uh, and uh, he, he's been able to do that because. Uh, Dunga was was always such a strange choice. We didn't really have any experience for the job, and he just couldn't live without conflict. You know, Dunga is the kind of pl- f- fellow who, uh, if he's got no one to argue with, he'll just go go to the mirror and have an argument with himself. He just need he just thrived on the, on that. Uh, and, and so Ch- Chichar has come in and, and done away with all the silly little conflict that there was, with the press that there was, with certain players. Uh, he, he he is an excellent man-manager. Uh, and one of the big differences between the Felipe Calcino, who played under Dunga, and the Felipe Calcino, who plays under Chichí, is the level of confidence that he now has. So the man-management has been much better. The, just to give you an example of that, they don't really have a captain at the moment. And the captain was Neymar, but he didn't want to do it. Uh, and, and so uh, what Chichí has done, I, I, I think that probably the long-term captain will be the centre-back Marquinhos but he's still a little bit green. So uh, what he's been doing with the captain is rotating it. Um, so, and for example, straight after the the death of Carlos Alberto Torres, you know, the great right-back from the 1970s side, who was the captain for the next game? Daniel Alves, the current right-back. Uh, the game afterwards, the captain there was Fernandinho of Man City. Now, Fernandinho is a reserve. He's a reserve of Casemiro. He was only playing because Casemiro was, was injured. But making him captain was a way of saying that, all right, you won't be playing the next game, but you are important to the group. Uh, And so that kind of man management, I think, has been very impressive. So uh, I think he's really, he's made progress on all all fronts, and the results certainly bear that out.
4: See, I mean, when you think about, like, um, people's, probably foreigners, probably cliched impressions of Brazil, um, that kind of militaristic discipline that Dunga was into, and to a certain extent... Scolari as well, you know, he was, he was very much a kind of Cardillo figure, you know what I mean? That always, yeah. seemed, it always seemed a bit of a weird fit for the Brazilian national team, like a group of players who should kind of have a slightly more relaxed setup, who should be looking at the game as though this might actually be something we could enjoy at the same time as, you know, um, as winning.
2: Yeah, but it's always been part of the mix. I mean, the the, the side that that leaps out as uh, as the example of all of those things of, of Brazilian football that you're talking about, the 1970s side, that 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 was they were highly militarized. I mean, that that came when the military dictatorship was 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 at its at, at its hardest line, and there was a there was a huge military presence around that side. Um, so that that kind of authoritarianism has always been part of part of the system. I suppose one kind of comparison you could make, doesn't really work with Dunga, but it certainly works with Scolari, is that, that, that the kind of father figure thing, uh, often the, the Brazilian players, they're looking for a kind of father figure. It was one of the things that Scolari complained about when he, when he worked at Chelsea, that uh, the players there, you know, his relationship with, with, uh, with many of them was just purely professional. Um, they weren't looking for for a, a kind of substitute father, but I, in Brazil that that that's often the case. So the, the kind of charismatic leader, the charismatic father figure, um, is is important. And I think Chichí is is in that tradition.
0: Tim, people mightn't be surprised at the identity of some of the players who are leading this resurgence. Philippe Coutinho, Coutinho in particular, and Firmino are playing together. You know, they've got that club partnership. But the score of the hat trick against Uruguay. Mm-hmm. Was Paulinho, formerly of Tottenham Hotspur, now playing in the Chinese Super League? I believe. I don't think too many followers of the Premier League would have expected this to be uh, the man who would be leading the so Does anyone know what happened? Why he was never able to, to produce anything like this at Tottenham?
2: Well, it, it is it, it is an interesting one. I mean, uh, I remember I did a TV show with Chichi years ago, just after he'd stepped down with from Corinthians, and he was just raving about Paulinho raving about him, you know, because they'd won everything together at Corinthians. Paulinho had been the vital player in that Corinthians team. Um, But he knows what Paulinho can't do. Um, Paulinho gives you versatility. He's got a great engine. uh, And uh, the most impressive thing about his game is, is the timing of his run into the penalty area. Uh, and the first goal he scored against Uruguay, he just put in from like 40 yards. And no one's ever really seen him do that before. That was a surprise. That was that was something of a confident player. The other two were just ghosting into the penalty area at the right time. And it's the kind of thing that really puts him more in an English tradition than a Brazilian tradition. You know, you think of like Martin Peters and uh, Brian Robson, David Platt, Frank Lampard. All of them had the capacity to ghost into the penalty box. And that's why I personally, I thought Paulinho would do very well when he when he moved to Tottenham. I think there are probably two reasons for, for the fact that it didn't work out. One, I think he's a very introverted character. Uh, and, but it was his second time in Europe and he, he hated the first time and I don't think he enjoyed the second time very much. Um, so I think on, on a personal level, perhaps he wasn't happy. But also, uh, although he's got great strengths, he's also got defects. And he's he's, he's uh, as, as uh, Chichí was 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 uh, when we were talking about this three three years ago or so he, he can't really pass the ball over range, there isn't a great deal of ability there, and maybe when you come into the English Premier League as, as a as a as, as a Brazilian midfielder who can get forward it conjures up certain certain images of uh, of flair and ability that Paulinho doesn't really give you, um, but he he's a player that. And he is one of the, the 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 big personnel changes. And basically, it's the same squad that Dunga had, with one or two exceptions. And Paulinho is, is the biggest exception because Chichí believes in him so much, doesn't doesn't care that he's in China. You know, wants what he brings into the team. And when Argent when Argentina were beaten three 0 in November, Paulinho then I think was probably the man of the match. In the first half Fernandinho was booked after five minutes, and they were in trouble there against against Messi. It's Paulinho who drops and helps out with the marking. And then second half, when uh, Brazil are 2-0 up and Argentina are on the run, it's Paulinho who keeps driving forward into the penalty box. Uh, and uh, and he, scored, he scored the third goal. So that was a game that showed his versatility, both sides of, uh, of, of what, he, what, he can bring, what he can bring to the team. So he's obviously now, when he's playing for Brazil, full of confidence. I think he's probably scored more goals than any other Brazilian central midfielder now. So, uh, you know, he's uh, he, he has his, his little place in history. Uh, and as long as you as you stick to what he can do and don't try and make him do what he can't do, there is a very, very in- interesting player there.
4: Yeah. I saw I was looking out to see um, how David Luiz did. And then I forgot, oh, he actually was sent off uh, there against, our, <laughs> against Argentina. What, what was it that he got sent off for?
2: Well, David David Luiz was sent off against Argentina in uh, November 2015.
4: Oh, right. So is he um, just not back in the team? What's the story with no,
2: him? No, 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 no. He hasn't played. And Dunga, who, who loved him, discarded him after a year ago. Exactly a year ago, when that uh, they played a year ago at home, it was a two-two draw, and Luis Suarez just 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 destroyed him. It was it was a dreadful display, and at that point. Um, That was the end of of David Luiz for the national team. And I don't think he'll come back. I think in a similar case, I might be wrong, but I think in in a way it's a similar case to Paulinho in that David Luiz is a player with with considerable talents but also considerable defects. Uh, And uh, I don't think he works in a back four. I don't think he's reliable in a back four. When uh, Conte there at Chelsea, and this is uh, to his enormous credit, has got a system there with that back three that highlights the strengths of David Luiz and, and, and hides his defects. Now, that, that system that Conte uses, and Chichu says, that system, that 3-4-3, is the one system that he doesn't understand. And he can't... So he, he, he doesn't... Nothing against the system, but he himself doesn't, doesn't understand what it takes to, to implement that system. And so it's, a, it's not a system that he'll be using. Uh, so uh, while Brazil are playing with a back four... And they're also, they're not conceding goals. I mean, they've conceded two goals in those in those seven games. Um, they, there's no need for a change of system. And if you operate a back four, can you trust uh, uh, David Luiz? So uh, it would be a surprise to me if he were to make his way back.
0: Oh, Tim, you've crushed poor Ken Spirit here. He's David Luiz's biggest fan. He, he, he's, he's crushed beside me.
4: Well, you know, David Luiz, always, he's always got a lot of knockers, a lot of doubters. Uh, Thiago Silva seems to live a somewhat charmed life to me, Tim. This is the architect of of Paris Saint Germain's collapse. It's uh, the architect. <laughs>
2: no, I think I think that's really harsh. I don't think Thiago Silva was at fault for any of the goals that were conceded. I, I do agree that, and, and what he is not. and I think we found this out during the World Cup. He is not a leader. Uh, he, he he does not organise those and inspire those around him. Uh, um, watching him as captain during the World Cup was was, was painful I mean it, it, I think it became it became very apparent that he's just he's just not cut out for that he's, he's, he's never been the the leader and 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 he never will be um, but uh, I mean he's not in the Brazil team he's in the squad but he's not in the team um, and I, th- I think that that's that's probably quite right while Marquinhos and and, and Miranda are playing so well together then uh, then then why not keep it that way
0: all right, Tim. Brilliant stuff as always. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Thank
2: you.
3: And Randolph sends it long.
1: That's his kind of Shane
3: Long's in behind the defence. Shane Long against Mueller. What a goal! Penalty. Hector. And that's the
4: score. The Hirschers with one zero in the 70.
1: minute. You okay there big guy?
3: Just
0: uh I don't know you just seem to drop the head a little bit when yeah. David louise when I you realise that that and international career might be have, over. I think we should have edited that bit out. No, you got to put it all out there. I thought it was November twenty-sixth. <laughs> oh no, it's not so much. It was just a small no, mistake. No, in no, right I'm there. talking it's about just, the deeper
1: existential yeah, problem at the heart that,
0: that, that you, Louise is gone from international football, essentially.
4: What well, he's gone for now, hmm. but uh, I mean, Marquinhos. You know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be hanging my hat on Marquinhos with too much enthusiasm for the idea of seeing that hat again, you know. Uh, I mean, Tim was saying Thiago Silva wasn't to blame for any of the Barcelona goals. Well, Marquinhos was there as well, and maybe he could have done a little bit better. Hey, Brazil
0: might be sorry. You wanted to keep going there? I uh, just want to just make the point that Brazil might be our back, but another proud footballing nation continues to stumble around aimlessly. Well, actually, not aimlessly. They have they had one man in their sights in the last couple of days, and that's their coach Danny Blind. Mm-hmm. The Netherlands, I speak of, can they've sacked Danny Blind? That's their aim at the moment: sacking their managers.
4: They sacked him. Um they they lost 2 0 in Bulgaria. Um, not a place they would usually expect to lose. Um they had a seventeen year old playing at the back to Light to who, who gave away the first goal within a few minutes by disastrously misjudging a high ball and they decided that was it for Danny Blind. they they're already it already looks as though they're not going to qualify for the uh World Cup, which is kind of grim actually. I mean grim, I say. Grim is the name of their new manager. Well, the caretaker mm-hmm. manager, Fred Grimm. But it is, it's a, its unfortunate that they're not going to be... I, I kind of like Holland being in the World Cup. I like their little outfits. They usually have a couple of good players.
1: Hmm. You're, they're usually good for a row as well. I mean, if that's your bag yeah. in the World Cup.
4: So I, I'd like them to qualify, but it looks as though they won't. I was just looking on... Actually, UEFA put up this thing. Just on, We were talking about food earlier. <laughs> UEFA had a thing. They actually surveyed all of the countries of Europe to ask, what do fans eat at half Ooh. And it turns out there's basically two groups of nations in Europe. Those who eat sunflower seeds and those who eat sausages.
0: Well, I was thinking hot dogs would be a popular one.
4: Yeah, Saus- Sunflower seeds. Yeah. Sunflower, sunflower seeds all around the Mediterranean. People just can't get enough sunflower seeds. Whereas anywhere outside that region people are stuffing pork products into your face. I'm
0: sorry, are the sunflower seeds
4: on something?
0: Or are they oh, just the being... Bag just the bag of seeds. Bag just of the bag of seeds, you
4: just eat the sunflower seeds. Sometimes a little bit of peanuts, sometimes pumpkin seeds as well. Um, sometimes you might even have a bit of beer or wine to wash those seeds down. <laughs> um, Ireland, I was interested to see what we eat. A Jaffa cakes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually not. Um, uh, Aidan Fitzmorris of UF.com. Uh, claims that beef tea, English style, is making a bit of a comeback, is it? I'm sorry, beef tea? Like Bovril. Really? I mean, isn't, Bo- Bovril is what is meant by beef Even tea, right? Ian Fitzmaurice is
1: having a laugh.
4: <laughs> Although he does also say, at most grounds in Ireland, you are doing well if you can get a bag of chips. Uh, UEFA then, right, possibly editorialising here, beer remains popular too. And then in quotes, it's a punnet
1: of chips as well. I mean, you never actually get a bag of chips at a, at a sports ground in Ireland, really, do you?
4: No, it's usually punnets. Daily Man Park, home of Bohemians, has three bars and just one stand. So, uh, there you go. Beef tea. This is show number
0: two that we put out today. The other podcast features Christina McMahon, Ireland's first professional women's boxer, about what she makes of Katie Taylor's professional career so far. It wasn't as straightforward a conversation as I thought it might be. Christina was... Very critical of how Katie is being promoted, I guess is the way to phrase it, or how the whole thing is being marketed. Basically, that it's been great for Katie Taylor, but it's come at the expense of women's boxing in general. So well worth the listen to Christina if you have any time left with your in your day, I should say. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks thank for you. Thanks for thank listening. you, Ken. Thank, thank you, Karen. You we'll talk to you soon. Is that? That's
3: the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those.